Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Transclusive Podcast. And today I'm talking with the amazing, lovely Miss Frida Wallace. And we're going to talk about all kinds of interesting things, hopefully. Hi, Frida. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I'm amazing you? and lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Hello. So how's Frida? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Just having a nice chill day off work and catching up with some... Uh, some of my paperwork and whatnot but apart from that yeah cool right so let, let's start with talking about your art because i've been seeing all kinds of things on social media of your like video samples and sound samples i think they're really good so how did how did you get started with all that well the thing what i do at the moment is it's a lot of it's to do with audio archiving so i've been working with manchester central library and they have a brilliant archive of you know archive voices of people that worked in the mills a lot of my works are about industrial history that's one of my main influences and I combine that with my music which obviously I mean I've, I've, if you've heard my music it's quite abrasive in what we call industrial music so I'm trying to combine a visual element to that and all these you know I, I love the sound of people's candid recordings in those mills because they at those times people didn't really speak as if they were talking on a podcast because there's no such thing of anything like that but they do become that kind of thing so those audio archives are really funny because people don't necessarily talk as though they're being recorded so they're really candid and honest yeah and the the language is really kind of comes across really old-fashioned doesn't it well, it is, yeah, because well, a lot of the ones are from the 50s and 60s. Well, like going back to the music side of it, like, um, what I come, I come from a visual arts background, really, because my uh, degree is in visual art. And so I was, I was, I was looking at machines that, that, are, that are kind of visually interesting, but also sonic so if, if you think about a musical instrument like a piano to me is a machine it's a beautiful finely tuned machine have you ever seen a picture of a piano with the lid off or the panel off it's a, it's a beautiful it's, a, it's just a load of hammers and strings and, and it's a beautiful machine so i thought well what other machines can be musical and and i came i started thinking about sewing and the sewing machine because one of the reasons I came up with that idea is one of the buildings our art studios was in in Salford was next to an old cotton mill. Right. So that was kind of directly making me think about those kind of machines. And obviously the, the landscape of Manchester is all about cotton mills. It's all like this, you know, up until very recently, most of Manchester city centre and most of it was a wasteland of old mills and they got, they slowly been gentrified. But I can remember going into Manchester and you could just see waste, you know, it was, there were just empty buildings with the windows smashed. Yeah. So that was part of the landscape. So going back to the sewing machines thing, so I, I started to think, because I wasn't into techno music, so it's like it's not really music, it's just a rhythm. So you can do that with a sewing machine. So I worked out a way to syncopate the needle of a sewing machine to a drum machine using MIDI. And um, so, yeah, I figured out all that. And I thought, well, how can I make this visual? So I made it into a performance piece. I do that performance piece in various locations. Where where did you do your performances? Didn't you do one in the library in Manchester Library, Central Library? Yeah, that was the that was um, back in May. Yeah, it was one in Central, and that was using the archived um, recordings from, you know, people talking in the mills. So that kind yeah. of came together with that very literally. And you mix that with your like performance thing you do with the sewing machine on the on the magic carpet well yeah well what the reason they had the, the reason the carpet thing, what's the story behind the magic carpet because a lot a lot of the floor because i perform on the floor so it's like a dance between i have two machines so so the re, the reason there's two machines is because it in in when when i wanted it to look like i was djing but with sewing machines because you'd have deck one deck two and a mixer but in my setup you've got sewing machine one sewing machine two and a mixer with an effects chain, and then all my other samples and everything like that. But I'm, I sort of dance between on the floor, 
I sort of contort between those two machines. And a lot of the floors that I performed on were just full of crap and shit. <laughs> and I'd end up with cuts and things. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to put something down. Yeah, so that that's the rug isn't really part of it. That's the rug's just kind of a. But it does. It looks like a magic carpet. It's, yeah, and you've got like uh, it's all surrounded by little candles. Yeah, well, well, the one at Manchester, I didn't do that. Uh, they said there was somebody there, a volunteer or something, and they decided that looked good. So I just let, I just let them get on with it because I thought, yeah, if you want to, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that myself. But um, yeah, the main thing is the the main focus is me on the floor with the machines, and I tend to wear like. Um, an old-fashioned dress. I've done this in a wedding dress, and I've done it in those kind of dresses because I don't know. It just gives it. A, 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 I like a very strong silhouette in the frame of uh, any sort of visual recording. So if I if I can be sort of a monolithic kind of, you know, bigger, and then you see, you can see the movement better of everything. So yeah, I really I really enjoyed it. And uh, but previous to that, yeah, I've done a lot. One of the best gigs I did was in the White Hotel in Manchester. It's not really a hotel; it's an old M MOT garage that they've turned into a techno club. But the sound in there is is absolutely amazing. It's like a big concrete walled concrete floor with like a massive sound system in it. So the sewing machine sound in there. Part of it is to recreate that sound of a cotton mill because. Like, I'm, I'm going off on tangents a little bit now, but when you look at when you look at old photos or old footage of cotton mills, what's missing is the sound, and a lot of those people went deaf because I had uh, my grandma, my auntie, they both worked in cotton mills, and when I remember talking to my grandma, she would mouth lip read you rather than, you know, listen to you because it affected her hearing. Uh, yeah, so when you look at those old the old footage and the old photo, what's missing is that oppressive sound because because right. you you might. A lot of the pictures of people in cotton mills were taken on birthdays or coronation or jubilees where there's some sort of celebration going on. There are very few pictures of people in mills where they're actually definitely working. And that what's missing from those pictures is that sound. So the, the connection is to me is to create that cacophony, but do it not from a massive machine, but do it from the simple movement of one needle or two needles. So, yeah, and in, in that one you've got, you've got a recording of a lady saying, you know, my headscarf matches or your headscarf matches your eyes. Yeah, that's that's one of that's one of the archive recordings where this lady's talking about coming into the mill for the first time and being introduced to the other ladies. She likes she prefers working with women. She says she used to work in engineering, but it was all men and they were smoking and you're not allowed to smoke in the cotton mill for obvious reasons. So she preferred it. But. She's talking about the ladies saying when she came in, she, one of the ladies used to sing your red scarf matches your eyes. And that was a song, a popular song at the time. So right. I found that song and I sort of trailed that song out at the end of that piece. But um, So what do you call that piece? Because we, what we're going to do, we're going to insert it into the podcast so people can listen. That one's called Beat Stitch. And it's uh, it, with the um, Ed, I put Ed scarf in brackets so I know which one, which which. Uh, audio archive that is well that's beat stitch see what i'm trying to what i'm trying to recreate uh, i call i i'm trying to create an indigenous music of the you know the industrial north like think about it as a kind of like if, if you could if you could invent an instrument that would describe that world that that's what i've made so that's simple also a, a lot of my work is about a very small action being amplified into something huge. So uh, one of my other pieces that I did is a it's just a metronome clicking. Yeah. And as you get close to the metronome, the louder it gets, and 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 eventually it just becomes unbearable. And you have a choice then to either stop that metronome or, you know, endure, endure it. And then eventually the metronome will stop because it's on a the metronome works obviously from a coiled spring. You wind up. So as that eventually dies you have a choice whether you resuscitate the metronome or you just let it lie if you've had enough <laughs> that was the idea so that that idea of the small the small movement of the because inside a sewing machine it's just a little motor with a belt and then the needle so i've got a contact microphone underneath and then a contact microphone in the mechanism and the top 
contact microphone is sending each click is sending a MIDI data to my computer. So it will lock the tempo of the sewing machine to right. the beat of the techno. So <laughs> that's the idea. I taught a lot of, especially uh, the first lot of girls that came over. Uh, I think there were students. They were they were girls that was they came from Austria, and these were the very first. And I think they came. Uh, they asked. They weren't all there in run of the mill working people. You could tell how they spoke, and they didn't speak uh, very little English. It was not. Very, very elegant sort of girls, you know. And we got uh, give us extra five bob in the in your pocket for teaching. They were here quite a bit, but not long. But they were very nice, you know. Um, and the one I called Gertrude, and she, um, she was just like, you quick, you quick. I said, well, you'd be quick when you're good. <laughs> yeah, remember that. Yeah. What did you like about stickers? Well, I liked the, the women. The women were a lot better to... Um, you see, uh, in engineering, it was in that standard. Um, it was mixed. There were men and women, and to get used to that. It was all right, but... Lots of smoking, uh, which they did then in engineering. But cotton mill, you never have it. You never, ever, even when my mother, you never smoked yeah. cotton mill, never. So, right. so what were your first impressions then when you went into the room? First time I went to the room, they showed me how to do do you like taking tubes off them, have you? Yes. Putting, well, there were four bobbins. I used to burn me. Because like, my knuckles weren't, I weren't grabbing like I should have done. Right. And my knuckles were pretty big. And uh, well, it's called burn, you know, and I used to think myself, I'm not going to work And then I got working with a lady called Connie. She was the one that showed me how to do it properly. She said, You don't grab with your knuckles, you said, You grab with your fingers. And then just, just, just bending, spelling. Yeah. Um, she said, That's how you do it. And after that, we got on smashing on this logical corner. Yeah. She was my, what do you call it? Um, she, she was my learner. Yes. She used to learn me. Yeah. Well, there were four bobbins. And then you had to put a net in but I used to burn me. Because like my knuckles weren't I weren't grabbing like I should have done. Right. And my knuckles were pretty big. She was my learner. Yes, she used to learn me. Yeah. Well, there were four bobbins, and then you had to put a net. But I used to burn me because like my knuckles weren't. I weren't grabbing like I should have done. And my knuckles were pretty big. And and I used to think to myself, I'm not coming to work because I don't like it. And then I got working with a lady called Connie. She was the one that showed me how to do it properly. Right. She said, You don't grab with your knuckles. She said, You grab with your fingers. And then just, just thing like Just bending slightly. Yeah. And she said, That's how you do. Right. And after that, we got on smashing on this little Yeah. She was my, what do you call it? Um, the le- she, she was my learner. Yes. She yeah. used to learn me. Yeah. Well, there were, there were four bobbins, and then you had to put a net, but I used to burn me. Because like, my knuckles weren't, I weren't grabbing like I should have done. Right. And my knuckles were pretty big. And, uh, I used to come and burn 
And then the other one I wanted to talk about was that the revolution is my boyfriend. Oh yeah, yeah. But go that's... on, tell me about that one. What's that? What's well, that? That that piece, that that's that's something separate to the uh, audio archiving thing because I'm I'm yeah. a big fan of Bruce LaBruce, the filmmaker, and he's you know his probably most famous film is Hustler White, which features I can't remember the name of the actor now, but he's in a Madonna video, and I think she discovered him through Hustler White. But anyway. Um, he makes kind of like titillating gay. It's not porn, but it's it's art porn. <laughs> it is porn, uh, but he gets away with it because he calls it art. But there's a lot of really interesting stuff in Bruce the Bruce. There's one called Otto Up with the Dead People about a gay zombie, but it's a metaphor for AIDS. It's a metaphor for the AIDS crisis. Right. It's, a, it's a metaphor for that demonization of you know, the bodily function and all that kind of thing. So it feeds into that. But that sample, The Revolution is My Boyfriend, is from a film called The Revolution is My Boyfriend. And I just took that little clip because it just sounded, it sounded very rhythmic. A lot of the, a lot of the refrains I use, like I do a lot, of, I do my own performance poetry stuff as well. That's something else that I'm interested in. But I'm interested in refrains that have a specific rhythm to them. So the revolution is my boyfriend. The revolution is my boyfriend. And it becomes a mantra and it and it draws you in. It's like I've got a there's a there's one of my poems is transgender lesbian sperm producing female. Yeah. So when, when I wrote that, I thought that sounds like a train coming. Transgender lesbian sperm producing female transgender. Like I just felt it coming. I thought but I've that's that's the poem but i but i wrote the refrains around that so that's the way i kind of write stuff i always come up with a couple of liming couplets and that that that's the frame for everything else but that one um i'm still working on that revolution is my boyfriend that that yeah that was just a little demo that i did it was an idea because I, I sketched things out on um i've got a program called renoise and you just dump loads of samples in it and it detects the bpm of beats per minute of each sample and then you can mix them all together the revolution is my boyfriend the revolution is my boyfriend the revolution is my boyfriend the revolution is my boyfriend
So what, where where are you kind of trying to go with this? Oh my God, that's a good question. Are you trying to accomplish something? Is it just like a hobby, or are you trying to what are you trying to do with that? Oh, it's it's more than a hobby. I mean, it's my second job kind of thing. I do get paid, you know, for doing performances, and but it is a labor of love. Like I would do this. I would. I mean, like my main job. It takes a lot of time and it's very tiring. So when I do have some days off, I'm usually just concentrating on doing my visual work and my audio work. So yeah, it is. It, I mean, eventually, I just, I just, I don't really think about. I just think about one project at a time. So somebody will say, I'll, I'll apply for something or some funding, or there'll be a, something happening, and I'll just put my name forward and give, do a proposal. People kind of in Manchester kind of know what I do now. Yeah. Uh, but, but my aim is to take it out of my, I want to go out of Manchester with it a bit, you know, and maybe translate it into a, you know, something a bit bigger. But, yeah. And the, the great thing about Manchester Central Library is that right outside there's a Wagamamas. And yeah, and it's got the massive uh, inclusive pride flag. <laughs> yes, it certainly has. Much to uh, Posey Parker's chagrin. <laughs> yeah. So we'll give, we'll give Wagamama a bit of a plug now. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when the, what's she called? Carrie Jean Posey Parker, Minsel, whatever. There was a protest there. I think they were doing Well, yeah, she was there. And it was it was that one where the girl got the mic and said trans women. She she must have thought she was a turf. She and they the, put some pictures up of people in the just outside the library on those, stands. That was part of an exhibition. That was a part of an about, exhibition that the library yeah, was doing. Yeah, that's part of a domestic abuse um, yeah. thing. That That's what that exhibition was about. Um, and they'd come along and done a protest. Yeah, they had no. I don't think they had any idea what that exhibition was about when when they set up for the protest. But it was interesting because I don't. I was trying to find out who that lady was that grabbed uh, the mic. You grabbed the mic, yeah. And it's said, on Twitter. Yeah, there's a longer video of it where you can actually see. Yeah, they chase her around. They chase her around trying to get the mic. Yeah, off they're trying them. to. They're trying to attack her. <laughs> but, Mad. You know. Anyway, yeah. So that. Uh, so, if people want to see your stuff online, what? What are your social media? Well, my main social media is Twitter at the moment, and and I've got a link tree on the top of my Twitter. So what's, you, you what's got, your Twitter handle? It's just Miss Frida Wallace. Miss Frida Wallace. There you go. And it, it's Frida Wallace, but the Al's in Wallace, uh, I think they're ones. <laughs> but uh, All right, right. you'll you'll find me if you look for Miss Frida Wallace. I think there's only one Miss Frida Wallace. <laughs> you don't have a web page, do you? No, no, okay, I'd bother with it's all on, that. It's all online. Okay. I've got a medium page and stuff, but I mean, I probably should yeah. do that. I probably should get a website, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I use Instagram, Twitter, and medium mainly. Yeah. See, you mentioned your day job um, and how mm. the art is kind of the thing that helps you relax, I guess, after you. Day job. Well, it's not. It doesn't really help me relax. It stresses <laughs> stresses me out more. Um, but my day you, job. You work for Northwest Ambulance Service, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I work um, in Bolton. I've worked in Manchester and Bolton, and I work for the ambulance service. And I work mainly in the community. So what I do is mainly patient transport based. I work with the dialysis patients, oncology patients. You know, it's people just coming in and out of hospital mainly. I have trained to do uh, emergency work and i have worked like during covid i've worked with the emergency crews but that's not i'm not trained paramedic because my education i did three years at uni to do my degree in arts and then an extra year studying postmodernism. <laughs> i don't know why i laugh at that but <laughs> Uh, yeah, I studied postmodernism, and and for, so the ambulance service is a bit of a world away. But it, to to me, the ambulance service is a dose of reality that I need, and it puts everything else into perspective in my life. Because, I mean, everybody's experience of anything is personal, but you know, sometimes you think, oh God, my life, whatever. But you, you know, some of the people that I uh, work with, and I, you know, the bodies really are, you know, against them. And they, you know, it's, 
quite stressful for them. So I kind of it, it's very grounding. Um, yeah, I can imagine it's yeah quite shocking and some of the stuff for you. Well, I like I said, I, I mean, I don't really work on the emergency side so much. So like a lot of the like, trauma and say you know extreme stuff I don't see but because I'm in the community a lot I see a lot of those subtle like a lot of people don't realize like I, I work with um safeguarding and you know we know a lot of people on the street homeless people and a lot of those people now are women and we have to have you know we have to have a good knowledge of who to contact if any if they need help you know with we, we, People tend to come to it because we 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 wear the same uniform as any other ambulance crew, and um, but we're active in the community, so we're not rushing around. So people tend to come up to us, and they've got something on the ground that needs needs to be addressed. So yeah, so you're out in the ambulance. Are you are you a driver or are you? I drive as well. Yeah, but I, I was just going to say, like a lot of people online when they say because there was a lot of talk about safeguarding and, they, and and a lot of the turfs they like to use this word safeguarding as if you know trans people are that threat to something and, and what i find is the people that talk like that they don't understand systemic misogyny they don't understand the systems that lead people like especially homeless women or women who are in domestic abuse situations they any any woman i've ever spoke to has never had a problem with trans people they just doesn't it's not on their radar they don't look at me and go you're a trans woman they just have an issue they don't need sorting out yeah and and <laughs> and their problems are caused by the systemic misogyny that all these terse when they're looking at trans people as a blame for something they look in the wrong way and they're allowing that. It's, it's what allows somebody like Wayne Cousins and the police to get away with what he did for so long before he did what he did because nobody's looking the right way. And, they, they, and, and the patriarchy, whatever you want to call it, the systems of power, they prefer turfs because they don't challenge misogyny. They don't challenge those power structures. They actually promote them. Yeah. Well, the reason I got into that talking about that then is because like like my job on the on on the road and on the street and in real in the real world you know i i find it very hard to take turf seriously i very i find it very hard to take their concerns seriously and when they start going about hospital wards and they start talking about who should be treating women and they don't want trans people treating women i was like well you you're just wasting your time because there's no threat there at all I mean, they'll pull up a news article about the one time some trans person, you know, did some heinous crime and that'll they'll base all of their opinions on that. But it's just they they just want us. They want every trans person to be that demon. And it's just it's just ridiculous. Uh, I think you've, you've had a few run ins with some of the anti trans groups online, haven't you? Well, I've had run ins in the sense that I'm quite vocal. And like when I've worked with, I work with the LGBT Foundation in Manchester and I work with the union Unison and we do like days where we wear our ambulance uniforms and we we have an ambulance that's got a pride flag on it. There's a police car with a pride flag on it. There's an, there's a fire engine. With a fire. But yeah. when these people see this, all they see is, oh, they're wasting time. They think that we're doing that when we should be working. We all do it voluntarily. Yeah. So... So these services have all have all spent money on providing these kind of ambulances, cars with pride flag on them. Yeah. And you've got your uniform on, and then somebody takes a picture, and it's suddenly online, yeah. and someone's saying, "Why are we wasting this money on trans issues?" It's not so much that they think it's wasting money; they just don't want us to be vis- vis- visible. They don't want to, like, they want trans people to be this exotic, weird, perverse um otherworldly thing that we're not i'm just a normal person doing a normal job and they that's what they hate they don't like anybody seeming effective in the real world so when they see me doing something or my friend uh doing something who's trans or gay or 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 openly gay they don't what they don't want to see that because they've already got a fixed idea of what that person should be so they will find these extreme examples of um trans people and you know, whatever, whatever, whatever make, whatever valid, validates their stupid idea, yeah. they will find that. But they don't want to see normal behavior. They don't want to see somebody helping somebody or being 
you know, supported in the community, like these organizations, what they do, they'll troll local police Twitter feeds where they'll just do one day, one day in the whole year, they'll go to a, a location and hand out information about hate crimes. And they can't stand that because that, to them, that is wasting police time. But also they don't understand that when 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 I when I used to get a night bus home from a, going out in Manchester, I knew I was going to get picked on. I knew there was going to be a hate crime. I just didn't know how serious it was going to be. So when I got on that number eight bus from Manchester Piccadilly to Bolton, I would brace myself and hide myself under a hood because I knew something was going to happen. Now we didn't when I, when I was younger, we didn't talk about hate crimes. You just got told. You've got to look after yourself. You've got to toughen up. You've got to do all these things, which is, you know, I'm sure that was seen as the correct advice at the time. And it's like it's like when people tell women, oh, you shouldn't wear a short skirt. Because I remember saying I got I got this was a long time ago, but I got mugged in Manchester City Centre. And I just happened to be wearing a pink wig and some PVC, you know, because I was a bit I come from a bit of a drag queen kind of background, actually, because like my, my friends are sort of on that spectrum of, you know, flamboyant gay, you know, performers and all that. But I, I'm in Manchester City Centre looking like that, basically. So and, and somebody robbed me. Right. So I'm going. To, what can I do? I'm going to go up to a police officer looking like that because <laughs> I know they're going to look at me and not take me seriously. It, it wouldn't matter what I happened to me. They're just not going to take me seriously. So it's like looking at somebody and going and judging them based on exactly what they look like and saying, you're not, you don't deserve help. Yeah. A bit of victim blaming. Well, yeah. But as, so, so when I, when you take that to now to, to the present day, it's happening online, isn't it? So when um, like the, there's this organization called we are fair cop, right. And their whole manifesto, if you call it that is to, say the police shouldn't be wasting time with pride and all this kind of stuff that's the that's their out like when you see them on talk radio or on gb news or whatever it is whatever right-wing organization wants to promote them the premise is that they, they think the police should be doing police work they don't believe in wokery they don't believe in you know this idea of inclusion and diversity but what they're actually saying is they don't like gay people what they're saying is they don't like trans people and they don't like the idea that we could have some political power because because that power is coming from a really a real it's a coming from a factual place because we're not we're not making it up we're not saying we're not we're not lying when we get attacked but they they want it to seem like that and that's why it frustrates me but anyway this is why I got uh, I don't know if um, I told you about this but I got pulled up by my employer because of my conduct on Twitter, because I'm, I'm very vocal and I'm a bit of a gobby bitch. You know what I mean? I will say to somebody, pipe down. You don't know what you're talking about. And perhaps I'm wasting my time. It's like talking into the void, isn't it? But my, my, my manager said, look, you, you know, you can't be seen in uniform and then call somebody a dickhead. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, I kind of understand. Fair that. enough. Right. I understand that, but they're, but they're pushing me pushing me to do that and and so so when they talk about free speech and this idea of oh, we want total free speech and we don't want to be silent we want to, we want to see we want to say trans women are men that's the free speech they want it doesn't have any value doesn't help anybody but that's the thing they want to say so then they they contact my employer and then try and shut me down for, for handing out yeah. flyers and condoms and lube. At well, they, what they want is one-sided free speech where it's okay for them to say what they want. But yeah, I'm getting on a can't. rant now. I'm telling you, I'm warming up. You are. You are. I'll tell you something. But, but and don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, this happened to me. So they tried. They, they, I don't know if it's somebody from LGB Alliance or whatever it was, but this complaint came through about me. So they complained to your employer because they'd seen your Northwest Ambulance yeah logos on your uniform yeah and and i have northwest ambulance in my twitter feed right. so and anything i say on twitter see mum basically so what 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 can, what kind of happened as the outcome of that well my manager said basically what he's right you know i shouldn't be yeah. telling people to do one if i'm wearing a uniform on twitter so i guess just separation of yeah but i don't but i don't want to do that because I, I'll apologize and say, look, I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm very measured in my, I, I, like when I first got on Twitter, I was, you know, effing and Jeff and left, right and center. 
but you learn to moderate yourself don't you and you, you learn that it's not going to help anyone and it's it, you're just making yourself look hysterical <laughs> yeah but northwest ambulance service must have its kind of internal kind of employee resource groups oh yeah, for yeah. lgbt people oh yeah it does that's what that's what that's what cl- they said look just just be careful that was the advice and that's it that's all that happened yeah. but what i'm saying is they try the 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 only motivation for them contacting my managers is to try and shut me down so get to me shut you down and get you fired that's what they're trying to do yeah exactly and it's just they 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 wouldn't be successful in that because no you know but what else um happened so so it's like i i, I write a lot so you write about these articles and stories and you, you don't you have a medium medium, medium. yeah you have a medium yeah. account don't you but but the problem is the way i write is very polemical and i'm very you know my my influences of writing come out of art criticism so you you're never looking at the story you, there might be a new story there might be something in the media but you're never looking at you're looking at why the story exists why now who's interested what is the motivation and those things are the important thing about any story. It's not the it's not the story that you they want to tell. It's the narrative of you know the the meta narrative. So you take you take the story and you kind of dig down into the roots of it. Well, yeah, it's the roots of it, but also the mo the real motive. Like when they're talking about trans, when they're talking about trans children, they're not they don't give a shit about trans children. They don't they're, they're happy to post pictures of kids. Or you know, young adults with scars. So they have no consideration for those children whatsoever. The real story is to demonize and to make people like mermaids seem like the bad guys. That's the only motivation. So you look at that and you look at the history of that and you look at who is involved. And that's the well, story. You look at the money, look at the money behind it as well. Yeah, that's tricky. Uh, the money is very dark. That I've tried to do that, honestly. You know, the, the people that fund think tanks and government lobby groups. I mean, I've uh, I've I've not I have seen I mean, I don't know if you're aware of Byline Times. Well, they did a great story about this, but like about Russian funding and, you know, right wing Christian funding. And it's really hard to align any specific lobby group to that funding. But if you look at Ash Sakar. Uh, on byline times and things like that that you you will find that that story so you you take the stories and you dissect it and try and get to the the roots of it so you you mentioned about your a little bit about your your kind of coming out story teen years and some of the issues you had in manchester yeah so you you want to do you want to talk about that a little bit because it kind of rem- it you know it it leads into the discussion we were going to have around indigo because i think you and i met via an indigo session didn't we mm, originally yeah, i think it was one of those um service user things they do the lgbt foundation yeah offices, yeah yeah at um trans pride manchester as well i've only been out as trans officially right when i changed my name about two years right and uh, about two and a half years now but my my journey is i call it a journey i don't sounds a bit cheesy but um started when i was like 15 16 because i told when i kind of i always made these noises to my mom that i wanted to be my sister well before i could even express what it felt like and one of the things that really opened my eyes um was julia grant and and there was a documentary on telly about julia grant julia grant was one of the first trans women that had a bbc i think it was bbc it might have been, I, no, I think yeah, it was BBC made a documentary about her. I don't know if you're aware. And I saw this and I, I, didn't, I didn't relate to everything that Julia was saying, but I understood because I, I must have been really young when I saw this. I can't remember like what year it was. It was like early 80s, so mid 80s. So I must have mm-hmm. been like 10 or 11. But I remember, I must have been younger than that. But I remember saying to my mom, will you watch this with me? And she was like, why do you want to watch that? you know what I mean but it was so so it was like little things like that and anyway as I got older I started to gravitate to you know androgynous pop stars and you know I suppose that anybody get trying to find themselves in the teenage years does 
but there was one particular artist called Jane County. It was like a punk, a trans woman punk, you know, lived through the whole Andy Warhol factory years. And um, she released an autobiography in about 1995, I think it was. And that just opened my eyes because that was like everything she wrote in that book. I felt like it was being transmitted to me from another planet. You know, it felt like it was coming straight into me, just me, nobody else. She was talking to me. Talking to you directly, yeah. Yeah, that's what it felt like. So I said to my mum, when I was about 17, 18, I I, I said I need to speak to someone about, I knew there was a medical pathway. I knew that existed, but I didn't know what it was. So what, what, what year are we talking now? 1995 96 right so there really wasn't much around back then no so i i I said to my mom i need so she told me to see that my gp and he recommended a child psychiatrist he didn't mention gender clinic he didn't mention anything about sexuality so i went to bolton royal hospital into this really clinical room where this psychiatrist everything about it there was no white coat but there was clipboards And he says to me, is it okay if I bring some students in to watch this session? So I was like, I was like, what? Yeah. So I was so scared that I just agreed. So there's like three people watching and this psychiatrist. And I can remember the questions. I can remember. I don't want to repeat the questions because they're just all, they were just all, they were like, do you, do you, do you fancy men? Do you think about penises? Yeah. Really weird sexual stuff in front of these other students who were making notes. like, And I felt like if I said the wrong thing, I was going to be sent somewhere. That's how they made me feel. Now, there's a, there's a scene in that Julia Grant documentary where she sees a psychiatrist, and it was very much like that. It was like a, he was very sort of well-spoken doctor who was very condescending, and that's what it was like. So that experience put me off coming out for about, I mean, I just lived like a double life for about 20 years. Yeah. So you ran out of the room basically and never went back. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I had this weird, I was lucky in the fact that I had a social life in Manchester. So when I finished work on a Friday, like I used to work in care, I used to work in mental health, believe it or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'd finished that job and I'd go to Manchester and sort of live in Manchester for the weekend. And I'd, I'd sort of spiraled into doing what all sorts of, pills and whatnot and getting drunk a lot and escaping because it was all about escaping the dance music scene then was like you know but i remember going to this place were you in some kind of denial at this point about your identity well i thought because i I started to hang around with drag queens and very flamboyant kind of gay men and that was the scene that i existed in so i was a they saw me as i did a very extreme makeup then because it was like a it was like a sort of uh, release you know, every, so because I couldn't do it, I, my it wasn't like I was trying to be a girl. I was trying to be Jane County, like this kind of mad drag queen thing, because I had because I was interested in any kind of visual art and makeup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was I was well into that. So I just saw it as a perform. That's how I sort of compartmentalized my life. So my day job, you know, just normal, and then yeah. at the weekend would be this ex- exaggerated thing. Yeah. Well, obviously that's not sustainable, is it? So, but I, I just think I could probably live like that for a long time. You know, I thought, I thought like I could, I could live that life and I could probably get a job doing that kind of work as a drag queen or whatever, but I never cared about that enough. So what was it that made you kind of think about getting in touch with a gender identity clinic? Well, it was to do with, I think what it was when I got, when I started working with the ambulance service, it was the first time that I worked for an employer where I could see positive affirmation of gay, trans, you know, any, they, yeah. they very, they're very inclusive. It's part of the remit that, you know, especially with, like I was saying about the LGBT foundation and I felt like this would be where I could come out, but it just took me a bit of a while to stop getting triggered by the idea of seeing a psychologist so was your first approach direct to indigo was that your first no well i i had been seeing speaking to my gp right about coming out so this is this is obviously not the other gp we're talking about oh, this no, is no. A, a new gp several years later one in manchester but i kind of 
chickened out a couple of times. I went to the doctor planning to say it, but I changed my complaint. <laughs> I said that I had some like a sore foot or something once. Because yeah. because I, I practiced saying it to her. I built it up into such a thing that it when I told the doctor and she said, Yeah, okay, we'll put you in touch with some and it was like, What? <laughs> it was like, it was yeah, like this, that is, was the, this is not my experience from twenty years ago. What's yeah, going was, on? Yeah. So but um I was really worried. This is when I found out about Indigo. I think Indigo was just starting up as I spoke to my GP because I, at first I was supposed to go to somewhere in Sheffield called Peterbrook, is it? Yeah, the Sheffield, yeah, I see, yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad because because it was it, it, obviously Manchester's just down the road. Yeah, but I was still I was still scared, you know, because because of my previous experience. But so you never got to see anybody at Sheffield, obviously. You just went no. straight into Indigo. Went straight to Indigo. Um, but it took it took about eighteen months to have a first contact, like a Zoom call, like yeah, to to establish, you know, how, how I felt about, you know, coming out, and they they ask you the usual questions about how do you feel about yourself and blah blah. Yeah, blah. so I think I was probably going through the Indigo process at the same time because that's how we both ended up on that LGBT Foundation hmm. uh, Zoom call. I think it was a. It was either around voice coaching or was it something to do with? Um, I think that was part of it. We just ended up yeah. having a natter, didn't we? About we were having a natter, and we... I think the other thing was um, becoming a Indigo service user yeah. advisor or something. I can't remember what, what it was called so, now. There was an advisory group, yeah, so that service users can contribute to the running of it. Yeah, but yeah, that's good. I've, I have contributed to that a couple of times. But... And you, you, you volunteer with LGBT Foundation now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so what do you do? What do you do with them? Well, generally, because I've got so little free time, I just when they have big events like a Join Pride and uh, Trans Pride, I just we have a little tent and we give out leaflets and advice and condoms and lube. Just throw them at people, and then we, but we just we just there for people to come up to us and say, you know, have you got any advice about this? And we have loads of signposting information. So if somebody might have a problem to say. You know, have you got any information about recovery from drugs or alcohol? It, it could be anything. You know, we if we don't have the answer, we'll try and find somebody that does, you know, and it's just to have a point of contact with people in the community. So you, you were at the Sparkle event at Manchester this year on yeah. the LGBT Foundation stand, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that was but, a really that was a really interesting event. I really enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, Ginny Lemon. Ginny Lemon, yeah. Yeah, it was it was I think it well, I, I, I had a bit of a funny turn that day because I'd been sat in the sun drinking Prosecco after the after I'd been working for the uh, the LGBT store. And I was just sat baking in the sun. And when I got up, I, th- I thought I was going to pass out. So, when you know, when I had gone, I'd gone to meet my friend and I was like, I can't. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the uh, security on the door wouldn't let me back in because I nearly collapsed on the way out. And they thought it was because I was drunk. But it it must have been. It must have been that photo <laughs> with Ginny Lemon. <laughs> yeah, but Indigo is like not my. Indigo is like a completely new experience and and a positive experience compared to like what I went through in the past. Yeah, they are. They are really good. You know, they're obviously a new mm. a new service and still yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and everything takes forever. It's yeah. totally oversubscribed, and there's just so many people and so few staff. I think they've had an extension to the pilot scheme hopefully yeah. they become a yeah they become manchester's full-time gic because we we do need one well there should be more gic's yeah. there should be one in every absolutely city, every really. city should have one yeah. i agree and that you know that model that model of working in the primary care facility rather than having to go to a specialist unit i think that's really you know 100 times better yeah yeah well i i've because they they have the care navigator system, which is you know I can just WhatsApp, I can I can just WhatsApp, you know. Yeah, you can just call up your care navigator or send them a message, mm. and you get a response. That's all you need, really, because you don't need to see. I mean, I have seen the psychologist and all that, but that's that to me that is just a matter of red tape. That's well, just, it's there if you want to use it. I mean, I and I just I because the thing is, it comes under mental health, doesn't it? But. The problem with that is it's not mental health in the sense that we 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 tailor our own care to our what we need. We know what we want. It's just you know understanding 
getting somebody else to understand that really so yeah but i think i think the mental health um you know the the questions they ask you around that and provision of a counsellors and psychiatrists and all that kind of stuff i mean it's it's there if you want to use it if you need to use it but it's completely it's it's completely optional well, one of the things that transphobes and anybody anti-trans will say on Twitter, if you have an argument, they'll say, you need therapy. Mm, I was no. like, yeah, I did. you know, I did need therapy. And I think you do too. And I think therapy is good for everybody. So don't shout at me saying I need therapy. Yes, I did need therapy. And there are a lot of people that do. And there's no shame. Don't shame people. Don't shame people for wanting to talk to somebody. Because that's when you but say it's not, But it's not related to being transgender. No, and it could be anything. It but could be any for any any reason. What, what people what people don't understand is when 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 somebody comes out as trans, it's not necessarily the trans person that needs the therapy. It's also the family of that because they don't if they don't get it if they don't if they don't admit and say, look, we don't fully understand this. Can we have some information? Therapy isn't somebody. Therapy isn't like a psychiatrist necessarily. It's just somebody who can listen. So when people say, oh, yeah, you need therapy, I'm like, yeah, everybody. I don't think I've met somebody who couldn't benefit from therapy. This is true. This is yeah. very true, yeah. And we, we're in a very privileged position, I think, because we we get regular blood tests. we got access to counselling. We can do that because we've faced up to something in our lives, whereas other people, they might not be trans, but they might be something they're not facing up to in their lives. And if they did, then they would be have access to that kind of information and help. Another thing about being trans that people often say is oh you if you take hormones it's going to mess up your body it's going to do that tell you what since i've been taking hormones i've had more blood tests i've had more checks on my body than i've ever had in my life and that yeah. is if they're going to detect something wrong with me exactly they'll, they'll do it through that. i had this very conversation with someone the other day you know i every three months i get a full set of blood tests yeah, you exactly know, exactly so so when people say oh i've heard people say things like oh if you take hormones you're going to get cancer i was like well i'll tell you what if i'm having regular blood tests and you're not having regular blood tests the chances are they'll catch it in me sooner i mean i <laughs> can't be any blunter than that about it because if they're going to start leveling that at me you know because when, just... when, they, when they say oh you're going to get cancer what are they talking about are they talking about prostate cancer because your chances of catching that have diminished exactly and but but it's yeah. but but they, they don't know what they're talking about, do they? It's, there's there's no science, there's no scientific. But it's like you know the Matt Walsh, Matt Walsh film, yeah. What Is a Woman or whatever. That I, I reviewed that, and there's like that kind of commenting in it all the time because it's about create all it all the the whole premise of all transphobia and media transphobia is to make us into a problem. Well, they they continuously cycle through these same old things that they're always talking about, don't they? Yeah, but it's always we, about toilets changing. Yeah, hormones uh, yeah, toilet, toilet, like a never ending cycle of nonsense. Toilet, sports, and prisons the axis yeah. of bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Never stops. Well, they're only interested in it because, because it's, a, it's a weapon to use against trans people. But on the whole, I don't think there's as much support for the you know, turfs as they hope. Because intelligent people, one of the reasons, one of the things that annoys me is that it, there's a, there are very few serious journalists who tackle this subject. Like Owen Jones has, and he has been pilloried for it. Uh, Ash Sakar has, and, and there are some, and there are people I'm forgetting to mention here. There, there are people actually on Twitter that I follow, like Mallory Moore, um, who just write brilliant stuff. You know, Gemma, who is, I forgot her surname now, who does. Um, LGB with the T. These people are doing amazing writing, but it's not breaking into the papers. And I think is that because I made a I made an update that said, "Do all UK UK media outlets lie?" Just asking because it feels like every major newspaper in this country now can't it just can't publish a truthful article. They've got to publish something that is a clickbait, or they've got yeah. to publish. They've got I mean, publish- you have to look at who owns these newspapers, and they, they seem to have agendas, politically motivated agendas. They do, and it's it, it's really frustrating because my mum buys the Daily Mail, and I say, "Mum, I sat down with my mum with a red pen <laughs> and circled all the lies in the Daily Mail, and I've run out of ink." 
And I said, Mum, why'd you buy this? And she goes, it's got a good TV guide. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only truthful bit in it. Oh, I'll buy you the Radio Times. Like, yeah, so, but, but you see, my, I can't get it through because my mum habitually gets that paper. It's not, I don't think she even cares what's in it. But see, people get papers delivered and there's like this cycle of news. But yeah, really, well, it's it's a never-ending cycle of stories. Yeah, it's shite. Um, so what it, is. it is, it is. I mean, if you, if you look but at I, like which which are the newspapers which are, you know, or online news sites which give a accurate. Well, my favorite, I mean, my favorite online news site is the Byline Times. Right. And I would say Pink News, but I'm a bit. They're a bit clip bit clickbaity sometimes, and they have been a bit. So, but I would defend what they do because I think you know they have they have done some good stuff. But you got yeah, Pink News, Vice, Vice, Vice can be good. Again, bit clickbaity, but but they, they see Vice is a bit. It tries to be hipster, doesn't it? And it, but it's like because I remember reading Paris Lee's stuff in there, and I found it funny, and because because that's the kind of way I write. I don't like when I'm writing about it. I wrote a, I wrote a series called The Turf Reich, so in that in that title is is a kind of irony and a, it, it, i'm trying to provoke with that title i and that's why they report me but but what i'm doing is i'm writing something that is serious but i, I have to poke fun at there has to be a humorous side to it for me to be able to to be able to read something because yeah the information's great uh you, you need factual stuff but for me to write something i have to do it from you know i have to take somebody down in a, a humorous way and that's that's why i wrote about matt walsh and that's why i wrote about jk rowling the way i did because I, I did that piece where i just looked at that photo of all the turfs around that table and i called it jk rowling's bottomless brunch <laughs> because that is what it is it's just a yeah. That group is just feeding off each other, and the scraps and the table are filtered mm -hmm. down to the, the the underlings. You know, the people that do their bidding on on Twitter, their little attack dogs, so that when when J.K. Rowling or Mayor Forstarter or Kathleen Stark or Posey Parker, whatever she's calling herself this week, post something, they jump on there and they they they're yeah. attacking us. So yeah. they they have their regulars. They do. And it's constant. It's it doesn't seem to end. It's I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you. I don't know what the best way to tackle this stuff is. Because I don't think know... it's. I don't. I mean, see, when I when I speak to people at work and I speak to friends and I say, they say, oh, I don't know why you bother. Just stay off Twitter. And I can see that. I can see what they're saying because they're trying to protect my mental health. But also, I do go in for it. I think there's part of me that actually enjoys it because. I mean, obviously, that's me. I'm not. I'm not recommending anybody start following this because because it can it can really start eat away at you. But for me, I like to have those arguments. If somebody's just saying, "Oh, you're a man," that's not an argument. But if somebody's talking about gender, if somebody's talking about what it means to be a woman, and on some sort of philosophical level, you want to have that argument, then I'm there for it. And you've been on a few radio shows, haven't you? I've been on talk radio and a uh, and uh, but I've I've recently declined to be on there because I mean they wanted me to go on with Julia Hartley Brewer but when I looked at the setup it was Alan Joyce now I'm mm. not going to be the trans person in that situation I mean, there's a reason they're inviting a trans person on there yeah exactly uh, it's not to be nice to them but I, but I could reel off a load of facts and I could say what Alan Joyce has said but then they don't want to, they, I mean, they don't want to listen to that because no. they know their audience. They want me to be the trans rights activist. And unfortunately, I am quite, I can be set off quite easily. <laughs> so I could be very ranty and I could be very, I could be that person. I could play that role for them if they wanted me to do it. But it's the kind of thing that if you go into those interviews, you're never gonna you're never gonna be able to say what you really want to say. No, there's they won't not enough let time. you speak. There's, not there's no time. time. They always cut you off. Exactly. You've got pre-prepared questions that they know will tri trip you up every time. You know. I I don't want to represent trans people because like some of the stuff I say and do doesn't represent anybody but me, right? So I'm always, am I doing the right thing by 
going on something like talk radio because it's an echo chamber but I find it interesting to be in that because the people that listen to that are probably the people that need to know. And that's the hope that something might filter down. Yeah, but- I think I think we need to hear the you know the transgender voice in these things, mm-hmm. but the way they do it, it's always done to diminish us and make us look stupid and take make you know take fun out of us. There's not enough high profile trans people in the media, so because there's not many of us anyway. So you've got India Willoughby. You've got Paris Lees. I mean, there's probably others that I probably should know. But there are very few that would go on Question Time or something like the uh, BBC News in the in the evening and present a, a debate or be part of a debate because they know they're only there to be the stooge or the token oh, trans person. Yes. And yeah. they're not, that's not how they define themselves. They're women. They're living women, you know. They're not. They're, they obviously they've they've had a trans experience because that's how they've lived. But that's not their like some somebody like him, India Willoughby. She doesn't think about this stuff unless she chooses to. But well, you know, trans people are not invited on those shows to to celebrate trans people. They're invited on those shows as the I don't know as as the thing to make fun of. Well, they're invited on as like as if it's like. Um, the other side of an argument like yeah. there's a for and against it's always set up as a debate but, the, but so these let's yeah. debate the trans lives it's not yeah debate, yeah exactly no. let's let's debate if uh let's, JK, let's debate J- if this person who sat in this chair actually exists well, well they're sat there aren't they you know they do exist <laughs> well what will happen is there'll be a new story it'll be something like um teachers have to use they them and and should but it's like it's a non-story anyway because it will have been blown up by a tabloid. So they're actually commenting on something that's already a lie, and they'll bring a trans person or a non-binary person or somebody from the LGBT to 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 defend that angle. So it's like so they'll put somebody who's completely anti-us against me. So it's like saying here's the cat that hates dogs, and here's the dog that hates cats. Let's put them together and see how they get off. But you have to be aware of that when you go on anything like that. So you you have to play that card if you want to. I mean. It's entertainment at the end of the day, but they don't care. The, the researchers for those things don't understand the subjects. They just know what is the big story that day or that week or whatever. My theory really is that the, re- the reason trans issues are such a big deal now is because where you probably would have an ar- argument about gay marriage, where you probably would have argument about gay inclusivity now, they can use trans in that same way. So it's like a fence. It's like a barometer issue. So you can ask somebody a question. You can ask a politician, can a woman have a penis? And that will decide something about that person. So it's not about trans people. It's about putting that person in the firing line of a dumb question. Because when somebody asked Keir Starmer, can a woman have a penis? And I can't remember who the journalist was that asked that, but he should have said, does he should have said, does having a penis make you a man? But he didn't have the thought in his head to do that. He just thought, what's this? What's this Those doing? kind of questions are thrown in to trip these people up. This is the thing. Another, another part of the um, conversation that annoys me is about biological reality. Oh. Like, as if I don't know about biological reality. Because I think that there are people think out there that think we're delusional people that think, you know, we're, we're, we're just we're just completely messed up and we think our bodies we don't accept you know I, I i'm somebody who's trans but i don't have body dysmorphia i don't have dysphoria i don't hate my body right yeah. so anything i do to my body i choose to do it now for some trans people that is not the case they just need to do they need to have that shape they need to, but i but but that's the difference with me and i think that idea of choice exists so so you can have that debate so I'm never taking that off the table in my, you know, when I talk to people. So if somebody says to me, because like I said, I, I've made these, my poetry and my spoken word pieces with the, with the poem that I wrote, transgender, lesbian, sperm producing female. Now that refrain, transgender, lesbian, sperm producing female, is about words. It's about what words mean. And it's about, I can be that. That, that can be my reality even though it sounds completely surreal and nonsensical, but that can be my reality in the world world of, you know, semantics. 
And that's you don't have to you don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to have a degree in psychology. You just have to have empathy. And that is it. Yeah. But when I write something like that, I know who it's going to wind up. <laughs> I've been ranting for about three hours. You know, yeah, we should probably wrap it up at this point. But yeah, really, really interesting talking to you. Thanks for coming on, having the chat. Thank you. You know, thank you. You've let me vent. And, uh, I've let you vent. I feel like I can relax now. <laughs> yeah, you can go and relax now. I mean, that was the whole idea of, you know, coming on and venting, you know. You're my psychologist now. Go <laughs> uh, on. I'm, an, I'm nuts. Yeah, can tell me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. It's been, <laughs> okay. it's been fun. Okay. We should do it again. I think we should do, I think we should do some more podcasts on some of these topics you've brought up. Definitely. All right. Thanks very much. I will sign us off there. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.